Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Noam Chomsky. Hi. Noam, welcome to Berkeley. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Philadelphia, uh, 1928. Uh, stayed there till I went through undergraduate school, University of Pennsylvania, then uh, went off to Harvard for a couple of years as a, in a research fellowship in the graduate school. Uh, when I was done with that, went over to MIT, and I've been in Boston ever since, around Boston since about 1950. Your, your, uh, your uh, parents both were Hebrew grammarians and taught Hebrew school? My father was uh, professionally a Hebrew scholar, and, and his main work was Hebrew grammar. Uh, my mother was a Hebrew teacher. Uh, my father sort of ran the Hebrew school system in the city of Philadelphia. My mother taught in it. Uh, he taught in a Hebrew college later. There's a Hebrew, there's a, a, a University of Jewish Studies, Graduate University of Jewish Studies, Dropsy College, which he taught in. And, but they were all part of uh, what would amounted to a kind of a Hebrew, speak, Hebrew ghetto, Jewish ghetto in uh, Philadelphia. Not physical ghetto that was scattered around the city, but cultural ghetto. And was Hebrew the language spoken at home? Or? No. no. Second, uh, well, we, we, it was in the background. So, for example, by the time I was you know, eight or nine, I would, in, in say, Friday evening, my father and I would read Hebrew literature together and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your perspectives on the world? Well, those are always very hard questions to <laughs> yeah. answer because it's a combination of influence and resistance, which is difficult <laughs> to sort, sort out. I mean, undoubtedly, the, the background was shaped the kinds of interests and uh, uh, tendencies and directions that I pursued, but it was... Uh, it was independent. I mean, I, I think more direct influences actually came from other parts of the family. Mm -hmm. So, and, yeah. please go ahead. Well, my my parents were immigrants, uh, and they happened to end up in Philadelphia. But my mother from New York, and my father from Baltimore. When he came over in 1913, for whatever reason, his family went to Baltimore, and my mother's family from another part of the Pale of Settlement came to New York. And there were two different families. There was the New York family and the Baltimore family, and we were in the middle in Philadelphia. So we naturally went up and back there close by. Uh, the Baltimore family, were, families were totally different. Uh, the Baltimore family was ultra-Orthodox. In fact, my father told me that they had become more Orthodox when they got here than they even were in the shtetl, you know, <laughs> the little town in the Ukraine where they came from. Mm -hmm. And in general, there was a tendency among some sectors of immigrants to uh, intensify the uh, cultural tradition as kind of probably as a way of identifying themselves in a strange environment, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So that was that family. The other part of the family, my mother's, was uh, mainly Jewish working class, pretty ra very radical, very uh, Jewish element had disappeared. Uh, uh, they were part of the, this is the 1930s, so they were part of the ferment of uh, uh, radical activism that was uh, going on in the 30s in all sorts of ways. And of all of them, the one who actually 
did influence me a great deal was an uncle, uncle by marriage, uh, who uh, was an extremely interesting person. He, uh, uh, I, he came into the family when I was about seven or eight and became a big influence. Married my aunt. Uh, he uh, he was uh, he'd grown up in New York also from an immigrant family, but he'd grown up in a poor area of New York. Which uh, in fact he himself never went past fourth grade. It was mm -hmm. you were on the streets. You know, mm -hmm. and, uh, um, this criminal backgrounds and all sorts of what's going on in the you know in the lower the underclass ghettos in New York. Uh, he. Uh, happened to be happy have a physical deformity so he was able to get a newsstand under a compensation program that was run in the 1930s for people with disabilities uh, he had a newsstand on 72nd street in new york lived nearby a little apartment and i spent a lot of time there that newsstand what became uh, an intellectual center mm. for emigres uh, uh, from Europe, lots of German and other emigres were coming. And he was a, a very uh, educated person. Like I said, never went past fourth grade, but maybe the most educated person I've ever met, self-educated. Uh, without going through the whole story, he ended up being a lay analyst uh, on a Riverside Drive apartment in New York. But mm -hmm. the newsstand itself was a very lively intellectual center with uh, professors of this and that, uh, arguing all night, and working at the newsstand was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So newspapers and, and events of the world uh, well, mixed up with ideas, almost like a coffee house without the coffee, I yeah, guess. Yeah, the newspapers were kind of like an artifact. So, for example, I went for years thinking that there was a newspaper called Newsom Mira. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason is, as people came out of the subway station and raced past the newsstand, they'd say Newsom Mira, and I, what I heard that way, and I mm -hmm. gave them two tabloids, which I later discovered are the news and the mirror. And <laughs> I noticed that as soon as they picked up the news and mirror, the first thing they opened to was the sports page. I see. I see. <laughs> but I, so this is an eight-year-old picture mm -hmm. of the world, remember? Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, there were newspapers there, but that wasn't, that was kind of like the background of the discussions that were going on. And then through him and through other influences, I kind of got myself involved in the ongoing 30s radicalism and uh, uh, was very much part of a Hebrew-based Zionist-oriented, this is Palestine, pre-Israel, mm -hmm. Palestine-oriented uh, life, and that was a good part of my life. I became a Hebrew teacher myself, a Zionist youth leader, uh, uh, combining it with the radical activism in various ways. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's the way I got into linguistics. Uh, uh, one of the formative uh, influences, I, 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 as I understand it, in, in this period for you is reading George Orwell uh, uh, and also in terms of events, really, in addition to the Depression, the, the Spanish Civil War. Tell us a little about that mix. came the other way. Okay. Uh, Orwell's great book, in my opinion, his greatest book, Homage to Catalonia, uh, I think it was published. first published in 1937, mm -hmm. but it was suppressed. Mm -hmm. A couple hundred copies published, both in England and the United States, it was essentially suppressed. Uh, the reason was it was very anti-communist, and in those days uh, that didn't sell. Uh, during the Second World War it was totally suppressed, because you couldn't be, you know, it was Uncle Joe, so 
didn't sell what he was doing. I actually, his book finally came, reached the public. This is from memory, so maybe the dates are wrong, but I think it was around 1947 or 48, with an introduction by Lionel Trilling, and it was presented as a Cold War document at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, Orwell, who had died already, would have hated it, but, uh, uh, and that's when I found Amish Catalonia, but I'd been interested in the Spanish Civil War long before. Mm -hmm. And uh, you actually wrote, your first essay was as a 10-year-old on the Spanish uh, on Civil Spanish, War. And what did you say then, and, and what do you think now about how that event and your response to it influenced you? Well, the article, you know, like you say, it was 10 years old. I, I'm sure I would not want to read it today. But uh, it was, uh, I remember what it was about because I remember what struck me at the time. This was right after the fall of Barcelona. The uh, fascist forces had conquered Barcelona. That was essentially the end of the Spanish Civil War. And the article was about the uh, spread of fascism around Europe. So it started off by talking about Munich and uh, uh, Barcelona and uh, the spread of the Nazi power, fascist power, which was extremely frightening. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, just to add a little word of personal background, uh, we happened to be, for most of my childhood, the only Jewish family in a Irish and Ger mostly Irish and German Catholic neighborhood, sort of a lower middle class neighborhood, which was uh, uh, very anti-Semitic. Uh, and quite pro-Nazi mm -hmm. uh, for all kind of, I mean, there's obvious why the Irish would be, you know, they hated the British. Uh, the, not surprising the Germans were. Uh, but I, I can remember beer parties when Paris fell and the sense of, imp of the, the threat of this black cloud spreading over Europe was very frightening. My, mm -hmm. I could pick up my mother's attitudes particularly is terrified by it. Uh, and it was also in my personal life, because I saw it in the streets. Mm -hmm. Interesting, for some reason, which I do not understand to this day, my brother and I never talked to our parents about it. Mm -hmm. I don't think they knew that we were living in an anti-Semitic neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But on the streets, you know, you go out and play ball with the kids or try to walk to the bus or something. It was a constant threat. And it was just the kind of thing you didn't talk to your parents about. You knew for some reason you didn't mm -hmm. talk to them. To the day of their death, they didn't know. Uh, but there was this combination of the knowing that this cloud was spreading over the world uh, and picking up particularly my mother's attitude. I was very upset about it. My father, too, but more constrained. Mm -hmm. uh, and knowing from you know, the uncles and aunts, some of the mm -hmm. background, and living it in the streets in my own daily life, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, made it very real. Anyhow, by the late 30s, I did become quite interested in uh, Spanish anarchism and the Spanish Civil War, where all of this was being fought out at the time. It was right before the World War broke out, but a kind of microcosm was going on in Spain. Uh, and I, a lot of, I, I went to, by the time I was old enough to get on the train by myself, like around 10 or 11, uh, I would go to New York for weekends, stay with my aunts and uncles, uh, and hang around on uh, anarchist bookstores down on, mm -hmm. around Union Square and Fourth Avenue. You know, there were old little bookstores from emigres, uh, really interesting people, you know. To my mind, they looked about 90. They were maybe in their 40s or something. <laughs> but uh, these people who were very interested in, in young people, they wanted young people to come along. They mm -hmm. spent a lot of attention. 
uh, talking to these people is a real education. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and out of that, I, I can't, uh, when I wrote the article, it was with that background. It was yeah. long before I heard of Orwell. And, and you, you uh, these experiences we've described, you were saying that it led you into linguistics, but it also led you into your view of politics and of the world. And, you know, uh, uh, you're a libertarian anarchist, and when one hears that in, in the way issues are framed in this country, and, and we know why uh, there's often so many misperceptions because of things that you've written, help us understand what that means. In other words, well, it doesn't mean that you favor chaos or, or no government necessarily. Well, Remember, the United States is a uh, is sort of out of the world on this topic. Mm -hmm. uh, Britain is to a limited extent, but the United States is like on Mars. So here, the term libertarian means the opposite of what it always meant in history. Uh, libertarian throughout modern European history meant socialist anarchist. It meant the anti. I mean, the socialist movement, the workers' movement, and the socialist movement. It sort of broke into two branches, roughly. One statist, one anti-statist. Uh, the statist branch led to Bolshevism and uh, Lenin and Trotsky and so on. The anti-statist branch, which included Marxists, left Marxists, uh, Panikok, Rosa Luxemburg, others, uh, it's kind of merged more or less into an amalgam with a big strain of anarchism. Uh, into what was called libertarian socialism. So libertarian in Europe always meant socialist. Here it means ultra, you know, Ayn Rand or mm -hmm. ultra Cato Institute or something like that. But that's a special U.S. usage uh, having to do with the, a lot of things quite special about the way the United States developed and this is part of it. Uh, there it meant and always meant to me uh, socialist socialist uh, anti-state the anti-state branch of socialism which meant uh, a, a highly organized society total completely organized and nothing to do with chaos uh, but uh, based on a democracy all the way through that means democratic control of communities of workplaces of uh, um, uh, feder federal structures built on systems of voluntary association uh, spreading internationally uh, that's traditional anarchism uh, at least you know anybody can have the word if they like but it's the ma a mainstream probably the mainstream of traditional anarchism and it has roots it in the coming back to the united states it has very strong roots in the american working class movements mm -hmm. so if you go back to say the 1850s uh, the beginnings of the industrial revolution uh, so right around the area where i live in eastern massachusetts textile plants and so on uh, the people working in those plants were uh, in part uh, young women coming off the farms. Uh, they were called factory girls. So the women come to the farms and work in the textile plant. Uh, some of them were Irish um, you know, immigrants in Boston and that group of people. Uh, they uh, had, had, a, had an extremely rich and interesting culture. They're kind of like my uncle who never went past fourth mm -hmm. grade. Very educated, uh, reading modern literature. They didn't, bo they didn't bother with uh, European radicalism that had no effect on them but the, the general literary culture they were very much part of and they developed their own conceptions of how the world ought to be organized they had their own newspapers in fact the period of the freest press in the United States was probably around the 1850s uh, in the 1850s the scale of the popular press meaning 
run by factory girls in Lowell and so on was scale of the commercial press or even greater. And these were independent newspapers, a lot of interesting scholarship on them, you can read them now. Uh, they were uh, not known, just spontaneously, without any background, and uh, they never heard of Marx uh, or Bakunin or anyone else, uh, they developed the same ideas. Uh, they thought that they're, they, uh, from their point of view, uh, uh, were what they called wage slavery, renting yourself to an owner was not very different from chattel slavery, uh, what, you know, what they were fighting the Civil War about. And you have to recall that by the, in the mid-19th century, that was a common view in the United States. Mm -hmm. For example, it was the position of the Republican Party. It was Abraham Lincoln's position. It's not an odd view mm -hmm. that there isn't much difference between selling yourself and renting yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea of renting yourself, meaning working for wages, was degrading. Uh, you couldn't, it was just an attack on your personal integrity. Uh, the, uh, uh, and they despised the uh, industrial system that was developing, that was destroying their culture, destroying their independence, their individuality, uh, constraining them to be subordinate to masters, uh, losing, there was a tradition of what was called republicanism in the United States. We're free people, you know, the first free people in the world. This was destroying and undermining that freedom. This was the core of the labor movement all over, uh, and included in it was the assumption, just taken for granted, that those, I'm quoting, those who work in the mills should run them. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, one of their main slogans, I'll just quote it, was, uh, uh, they condemned what they called the new spirit of the age, uh, gain wealth forgetting all but self. You know, <laughs> that idea that yeah. you should, the new spirit, that you should only be interested in gaining wealth and forgetting about your relations to other people, they regard it as just a, a violation of fundamental human nature and a degrading idea. Well, that grew into a, that was a strong, rich American culture, mm -hmm. which was crushed by violence. The United States has a very violent labor history, much more so than Europe. And this was, did, was wiped out over a long period, but with, very, with extreme violence. Mm -hmm. By the time it picked up again in the 1930s, that's when I sort of came, personally came into the tail end of it. Uh, after the Second World War, it was just crushed. Mm -hmm. So by now it's forgotten. But it's very real. And see, I don't really think it's forgotten. I think it's just below the surface, surface in yeah. people's consciousness. Yeah. And, and this is a continuing problem. And, and it actually, it's something that emerges in your scientific work also, namely the extent to which histories and traditions are forgotten. And actually to, to really define a, a new position often means going back and finding those older traditions. When the, these, these things like this are, they're forgotten in the intellectual culture. Mm -hmm. But my feeling is they're probably alive in the popular culture, in people's sentiments and attitudes and understanding and so on. I mean, I know when I talk to, say, working class audiences today and I talk about these ideas, they mm -hmm. seem very natural to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true nobody talks about them, but when you bring it up, I mean, the idea that you have to rent yourself to somebody and follow their orders and that they own and you, you work there and you built it, but you don't own it, 
That's a highly unnatural notion. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't you don't have to study any uh, complicated theories to see that this is just, just, just an attack on human dignity. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, coming out of this tradition, being influenced by it, uh, and 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 continue to to believe in it, what what is, what is your notion of legitimate power? Under uh, what circumstances uh, is power legitimate? Well, the the core of the anarchist tradition, as I understand it. Uh, is that power is always illegitimate unless it proves itself to be legitimate. Mm -hmm. So the burden of proof is always on those who claim that some authoritarian hierarchic uh, relation is legitimate. Mm -hmm. If they can't prove it, mm -hmm. then it should be dismantled. Can you ever prove it? Well, it's a heavy burden of proof to bear, but I think sometimes you can bear it. So to take a homely example, if I'm walking down the street with my four-year-old granddaughter and she starts to run into the street and I grab her arm and pull her back. That's an exercise of power and authority, mm -hmm. but I think I can give a justification for it. I'm obvious what the justification mm -hmm. would be. Uh, and maybe there are other cases where you can justify it. But the question that always should be asked uppermost in our mind is why should I accept it? Uh, it's the responsibility of those who exercise power mm -hmm. to show that somehow it's legitimate. It's not the responsibility of anyone else to show that it's illegitimate. It's illegitimate by assumption. Mm -hmm. uh, if uh, it's a relation of authority among human beings, which places some above others, and that's illegitimate by assumption. Mm -hmm. Unless you can give a strong argument to uh, show that it's right, you've lost. Uh, mm -hmm. same, it's kind of like the use of violence. Mm -hmm. uh, say in international affairs. There's a very heavy burden of proof to be borne by anyone who calls for violence. Maybe it can be sometimes justified. Personally, I'm not a committed pacifist, so I think that yes, it can sometimes be justified. So I thought, in fact, in that article I wrote in tenth, fourth grade, I thought the West should be using force mm -hmm. to try to stop fascism. Mm -hmm. And I still think so. But, I mean, now I know a lot more about it. I know that the West was actually supporting fascism, mm -hmm. supporting Franco, supporting Mussolini, and so on, and even Hitler. I uh, didn't know that at the time. Uh, but I thought then, and I think now, that the use of force to stop that plague would have been legitimate and finally was legitimate. But uh, an argument has to be given for it. Mm -hmm. Is there less of a burden of proof uh, when, when you're looking at uh, weaker power uh, 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 entities, uh, uh, looking at the powerless, basically? Do, do, is the burden yeah. of proof less same. for them? No, same. Take, same, same. Uh, I mean, take, say, uh, you know, people living under military occupation or under uh, racist regimes and so on. I mean, they have a right to resist. Actually, everyone in the world except the United States and Israel believes they have a right to exist. Mm -hmm. If you look at the UN resolutions. Talking about Palestine now. Uh, yeah. Palestine or South Africa. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you take a look at the, the major UN, there are major UN resolutions on terrorism. Mm -hmm. One in 1987, uh, denouncing the plague of international terrorism, calling on everyone to do something to stop it. It passed with two negative votes, the United States and Israel. Mm -hmm. The reason was exactly this. Uh, they explained it. It said nothing in this resolution will prejudice the right of people to struggle for independence against racist and colonialist regimes and foreign military occupation. That referred to South Africa and Israel. So therefore the United States 
objected because it is opposed to, the, it does not grant the right of people to struggle against racist and colonialist regimes and foreign occupation. The U.S. and Israel are alone in that. When the U.S. votes against a resolution, it's out of history. Mm -hmm. So you don't read about it, but it's there. The war against terrorism is new, it's old. The U.S. is alone in opposing it. Uh, the, uh, uh, now, Grant, I, I believe that the world is right on this and that the U.S. is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a right to resist racist and colonialist regimes and foreign military occupation. But then comes your question. Is there a right to use violence to do that? Well, no, I think the burden of proof is on those who say there is a right to use violence, and that's a hard burden to meet, both morally and even tactically. And frankly, I don't think it, I think it can very rarely be met. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, uh, uh, I, I think I've read interviews where you uh, have tried to separate uh, the, uh, your approach in science to your approach in politics, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to whether, I'll ask the question again, is there, uh, how, let me ask you this way, how does your approach to the world as a scientist affect and influence the way you approach politics? Well, and, and sort of, see, I think studying science is a good way to get into fields like history. Okay. Uh, the reason is you learn what an argument means. Mm -hmm. You learn what evidence is. Uh, you learn you know, what, what makes sense to postulate and when, uh, what, what's going to be convincing. You, you sort of internalize the modes of rational inquiry, which happen to be much more advanced in the sciences than anywhere else. Uh, on the other hand, you know, applying um, relative, relativity theory to history isn't going to get you anywhere. No, no. So it's a <laughs> yeah. mode of it's yeah, a right, mode of right. thinking. Okay. And I try at least with what success others have to judge to use the mode of thinking that you would use in the sciences to human affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's a good idea to do so. Uh, as to other connections, there may be some, but they're pretty remote. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about the core notions of what I was calling anarchism, which, as I say, is just deeply rooted in popular traditions everywhere, for good reasons, I think. Uh, it's based on a certain conception of, if you sort of try to take it apart, it's based on some kind of conception of uh, what Bakunin once called an instinct for freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, people have an instinctive drive for freedom from domination and control. I think that's, can't prove it, but mm -hmm. it's probably true. Uh, the core of the work that I've been interested in in language is also interested in a kind of human freedom, the, ability, the cognitive capacity to create indefinitely and its roots in our nature. Now, historically, people have drawn a connection between this. So if you look at the, say, 18th century Enlightenment and the Romantic period, this connection was explicitly drawn. So you read Rousseau or Wilhelm von Humboldt and others, the connection between human freedom uh, as a, in the social and political realm and human freedom in the creative use of cognitive capacities, particularly language, they did try to establish a connection. Now, if you ask, can this be connected at the level of science, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. It's just a sort of a parallel intuition, uh, mm -hmm. which doesn't link up empirically, but maybe could someday, if we knew enough. 
You, you said somewhere, uh, I think in, in this new book uh, on power, you, you can lie or distort the story of the French Revolution as long as you like and nothing will happen. Propose a false theory in chemistry and it'll be refuted tomorrow. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I mean. Yeah. Uh, it, nature's tough. Can't fiddle with Mother Nature. She's a hard taskmistress. Uh, so you're forced to be honest mm -hmm. in the natural sciences. In the soft fields, you're not forced to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody's going to undermine. I mean, you know, there are standards, of course. Uh, on the other hand, they're very weak. Uh, and if what you propose is ideologically acceptable, that is supportive of power systems, you can get away with a huge amount. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the difference between the, con the, the conditions that are imposed on dissident opinion and on mainstream opinion are radically different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll give you concrete examples, mm -hmm. if you like. Yeah, do. Okay, so for example, uh, if I write about terrorism, say I've written about terrorism, and I think you can show without much difficulty that uh, terrorism pretty much corresponds to power. I don't think that's very surprising. Mm -hmm. But the more powerful states are involved in more terrorism mm -hmm. by and large, and the United States is the most powerful, so it's involved in massive terrorism by its own definition of terrorism. Well, if I want to establish that, I'm required to give a huge amount of evidence. And I think that's a good thing. I don't object to that. I think anyone who makes that claim should be held to very high standards. So extensive documentation from the internal secret record, from the historical record, and so on. Mm -hmm. And if you ever find a comma misplaced, somebody ought to criticize you for it. Mm -hmm. So I think those standards are fine. All right, now let's suppose that you play the mainstream game. So, for example, Yale University Press just came out with a volume called The Age of Terror. Uh, the con contributors are leading historians, many of them at Yale, the top people in the field. You read the book, The Age of Terror, first thing you notice is there isn't a single footnote. There isn't a single reference. They're just uh, off the top of your head statements. A lot of, some of the statements are tenable, some are untenable, but there are no criteria. Mm -hmm. There are no intellectual criteria imposed. Uh, the reviews of the book are very favorable and laudatory. Mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. I mean, I happen to think a lot of it's wrong and demonstrably wrong, but it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. You can say anything you want because you're supporting power and nobody expects you to justify anything. Mm -hmm. For example, if, if I was, say, on uh, the unimaginable circumstance that I was on some, say, nightline, mm -hmm. uh, and I was asked <laughs> to uh, uh, say, do you think... Um, Qaddafi is a terrorist. I could say, yeah, Qaddafi's a terrorist. I don't need any evidence. Suppose I said uh, George Bush is a terrorist. Mm -hmm. Well, then I would be expected to provide evidence. No, you mm -hmm. can't just say that. So uh, but you aren't cut off right then. Yeah, but you, but the, see, and in fact, the structure of the news yeah. production system is you can't produce evidence. In mm -hmm. fact, there's even a name for it. Uh, I learned it from uh, the producer of Nightline, mm -hmm. Jeff Greenfield. It's called Concision. Mm -hmm. uh, he was asked in an interview somewhere why they didn't have me on Nightline. And his answer was uh, two answers. First of all, he says, well, he talks Turkish. Nobody understands it. Mm -hmm. But the other answer was he lacks concision, mm -hmm. which is correct. I agree with him. Uh, the kinds of things that I would say on Nightline you can't say in one sentence uh, because mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. depart from standard religion. Mm -hmm. If you want to repeat the religion, you can get away with it between two commercials. Mm 
-hmm. If you want to say something that questions the religion, you're expected to give evidence. And that you can't do with between two commercials. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you lack concision. So therefore, you can't talk. Actually, that's a terrific technique of propaganda. Mm -hmm. To impose concision is a way of virtually guaranteeing that the party line gets repeated over and over again and that nothing else is heard. And, and this is why so much of your work uh, in, in the area of politics has really been focused on what you call the manufacturing of consent, namely the framing of issues, the way uh, 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 topics are put off uh, the table for discussion. Uh, and and that it, so in the end, what, what, your, what your work uh, suggests is that in focusing on that and coming to understand that, then there's hope for, for really understanding the problems we confront. Oh, yeah. Actually, I should say the term manufacturer of consent is not mine. Yeah. It's, I took it from Walter Lippmann, mm -hmm. the leading public intellectual and leading media figure of the 20th mm -hmm. century, who thought it was a great idea. Yeah. He said, we should manufacture consent. That's the way democracies should work. There should be a small group of powerful people and the rest of the population should be spectators, and you should force them to consent by controlling, regimenting their minds. That's the leading idea of uh, democratic theorists uh, and the public relations industry and so on. So I'm not making it up. In fact, mm -hmm. I'm just borrowing their conception and telling other people what they think. Uh, but yeah, that's very important. And yes, there is hope. I think ordinary common sense suffices, no special training like my uncle, uh, to unravel this and see what's really happening. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's hard to discover that mm -hmm. the U.S. is a leading terrorist state. Mm -hmm. In fact, and it's obvious. And, and when, when one reads your arguments, uh, uh, really what you're laying out is fairly simply, Very simple. Simple, na namely, uh, if I can paraphrase, uh, that if you're suddenly calling Iraq a rogue state in the 90s, well, what were you calling it in the 80s, and were they doing the same thing? And at that time, were you helping them do it? And, and this is your critique of, of, of U.S. foreign policy. Well, you know, I think, I mean, if George Bush tells us, like he did last week, and Tony Blair tells us, in this case, that we can't let Saddam Hussein survive because he's the most evil man in history, he even used chemical weapons against his own people, I agree that far. But, you know, it gives hypocrisy a bad name to stop there. Mm -hmm. You have to add, yes, he used chemical weapons uh, against his own people with the support of Daddy Bush, mm -hmm. uh, who continued to support him right past that, knowing that he was doing, helped him develop weapons of mass destruction, uh, welcomed him as a friend and ally, gave him lavish aid after all these crimes. Unless you add that, uh, you know, it's just, like I say, giving hypocrisy a bad name. Well, nobody does that. Mm -hmm. You can read the commentary and the learned opinion and leading figures, and they just stop. He used chemical weapons against his own people. Now, this is not difficult to understand. I think mm -hmm. you can explain this to children in school, you know. Mm -hmm. And it takes major efforts for the educated classes to prevent people from knowing these things. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that takes dedication. It would be a lot easier to tell the truth. Uh, this is one example. It's a characteristic example. 
sort of take, say, the in the late 1990s, you know, 19, last few years, there was a huge chorus of self-adulation in the West about how we're entering a new age of history in which, uh, you know, the uh, enlightened states uh, bring uh, humani humanitarian ideals to the world uh, for the first time in history, follow principles and values, and the proof of it is we're bombing Serbia. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, at the very same moment, the mm -hmm. same people were actively supporting terrorist atrocities, which went way beyond anything charged to Milosevic and Kosovo. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I just happened to come back from the site of one of them, southeastern Turkey, mm -hmm. where massive atrocities were going where on. Where the, the Turkish government is committing atrocities against the Kurdish people. Well, I w yes, that's true, but the way I would put it is the U.S. government is committing mm -hmm. atrocities. By providing by aid. By providing the all, virtually 80% of the arms and in an increasing flow as mm -hmm. atrocities increase. Uh, providing the support, blocking criticism. The press is helping by not reporting it. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, even more amazingly, Turkey is praised here mm -hmm. for its, as a model for opposing terrorism, mm -hmm. namely by carrying out some of the worst terrorist atrocities of the late 1990s with our assistance. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's an impressive contribution of the educated culture. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be easy. It takes effort to do this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not hard to explain. I like I can explain in two minutes. You know, mm -hmm. And even give you the documentation if you want. Now, now, if we were at the Council of Foreign Relations, which we're not, the, the argument would be made, well, uh, Turkey has to fit into a larger strategic uh, 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 view of the world in which they are a modernizing secular Islamic uh, state. Or they're not an Islamic state. They're a state that has Islam you know, uh, within its population. What would your answer be to so that? So therefore, we should help them uh, drive two to three million people out of their homes, destroy thousands of villages, and no, kill 50,000 yeah, 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 Well, that's yeah, the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I think we're harming Turkey yeah. by doing this. We're supporting the most re reactionary str uh, strains in Turkey. Like I say, I was just there. Mm -hmm. I was there talking about these things. And popular support for opposing the military-run regime is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. We're supporting the military-run regime. We're supporting, uh, we're, we're preventing its modernization and development. In fact, that's happening throughout much of the world. But even if it were true that we were helping modernization, that in no sense justifies yeah. participation in some of the worst acts of terror or worse, I don't know if it's worse, parallel, praising them as a model for countering terror by carrying out massive terror. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can generalize this. I mean, take, say, let's go somewhere else, Indonesia. Uh, when uh, the, the U.S. was trying to, the, Indonesia was following an independent path in the 1950s and the early 60s. U.S. was strongly opposed, actually tried to break up Indonesia in 1958. Finally, a military coup took place with the assistance of the United States in 1965. The coup massacred a, couple of hundred, maybe a million people, nobody knows, mm -hmm. mostly landless peasants. It was greeted here with complete unconstrained euphoria. It was described accurately. So New York Times, a staggering bloodbath, a Time Magazine, you know, boiling bloodbath, and praised. Uh, it was praised because what they called the Indonesian moderates, namely the ones who carried out the massacre, uh, were turning the country into a U.S. client state. Mm -hmm. Well, for, for the next, up and from then, 65 till 98, in the, the Indonesian leader, one of the worst, uh, kind of like Saddam Hussein, one of the worst criminals of the modern age, was lavishly praised and supported 
uh, as a wonderful person. The Clinton administration called him our kind of guy uh, because he was serving U.S. interests while carrying out huge massacres and compiling one of the worst uh, records of atrocities in the world. What happened to that in history? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's history, yeah. but uh, it's not what you teach people in uh, high school as you should in a free country. Mm -hmm. That's the task of the intellectuals. Make, be careful to be sure that nobody understands what's going on. Uh, that's a major task. Uh, you, you actually believe that there are two kinds of individual uh, intellectuals. One, the kinds that serve state power and uh, or power and are rewarded, and the other, somebody, uh, those who stand outside, who basically call a, a spade a spade. And, yeah, and we, we all agree with that when we're talking about enemies. Yeah. So when we're talking about the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. we all agree that there was a difference between the commissars and the dissidents. Mm -hmm. uh, the commissars were the guys inside who were propag you know, propagating state propaganda, and the dissidents are a very small group on the fringe who are trying to call a spade a spade. And we honor the dissidents and we uh, condemn the commissars. Because they were doing it in, the, in, the, in, in, the, our, in our adversaries. Yeah, when we turn around at home, it's yeah. the opposite. Yeah. Uh, we honor the commissars and we condemn the dissidents. And furthermore, this goes right through back, back through history. Yeah. You know, go back to classical Greece and the Bible. So who, who drank the hemlock in classical Greece? Was it a commissar or a dissident? Okay. Uh, when you go to, uh, to say, the Bible, you know, you know, you read the biblical record, there are people called prophets. Prophets just means intellectuals. Um, mm -hmm. They were people giving geopolitical analysis, you know, moral lessons, that sort of thing. We call them intellectuals mm -hmm. today. Uh, there were the people we honor as prophets. There were the people we condemn as false prophets. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the biblical record, at the time, it was the other way around. Mm -hmm. The flatterers at the court of King Ahab were the ones who were honored. Mm -hmm. The ones we call prophets were driven into the desert and imprisoned. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the way it's been throughout history. And understandably, power does not like to be undermined. Uh, there's a, an important point here that I want to bring out, which is if you're comparing uh, our acting against Serbia at a time when we're not doing anything about East Timor, where Burke, Indonesia, Burke, or, or a number of other places. Well, the, we, the, it's not that we're not doing it. We're well, doing, we're, no, we're doing, the we're wrong doing thing. something about it. Yeah, we're, we're intensifying the, the atrocity. But, but I guess the, the really interesting thing is that as part of the self-deception that is created by the media, we, we forget we're doing in one place and set it where it would be very easy to do something about it, yeah. namely stopping Stop the military aid. Whereas in other areas, for example, Serbia, well, if you start bombing, you know, what are the consequences for innocent that's, people? So that's a, another question. Yeah. So, what sh so this is independent of what we should have done in Kosovo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe we sh you can yes that on its own. Yeah. But what it does show is that whatever we did, it's not humanitarian. Mm -hmm. You just take a look at everything else mm -hmm. that's going on, you see that. Mm -hmm. So what should we have done in Kosovo? Mm -hmm. Well, here you have to look at the record. Uh, and the record is interesting, and it's suppressed by the intellectuals. Mm -hmm. So there's a massive literature about it, uh, and if you look through that literature, you'll notice that something is systematically omitted, namely the actual record of what was happening. And we have a voluminous record from the State Department, mm -hmm. from the British uh, defense system, mm -hmm. from NATO, from the UN. As far as I'm aware, there's only one book in print that reviews that record, mine. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course the book is condemned because it reviews the record. What the record shows is unequivocal. Mm -hmm. uh, right up to shortly before the bombing, 
the British, who were the most hawkish element of the coalition, internally, now it's released and it was internal, mm -hmm. uh, regarded the guerrillas as the main source of atrocities. Mm -hmm. This is after the Rachek mess. This would be the Albanian guerrillas. Yeah, they said they're the main source of the atrocities. Yeah. What they're trying to do is to elicit a disproportionate mm -hmm. Serbian response, which they did, which would then bring in the West. Now, I don't personally believe that, but that's the British. Uh, we know that right up until the bombing, nothing much changed. Mm -hmm. It was an ugly place. I mean, you know, these are not nice guys. Mm -hmm. The Serbian occupiers were doing vicious things, mm -hmm. and not on the level of what we, we were doing in other places, but bad enough. Mm -hmm. uh, but nothing changed up till the bombing. The bombing was under, when the bombing was undertaken, it was on the expectation that it would elicit atrocities. Mm -hmm. Not surprising. You start mm -hmm. bombing people, they react. Yeah. And it did. I mean, when the, uh, you look at the Milosevic trial, it's for crimes committed after the bombing. One exception, but... Uh, the bombing being by NATO. By NATO. NATO. After the bombing, with an yeah. invasion threat, yeah. exactly as anticipated, mm -hmm. atrocities mounted and they started expelling the population. Mm -hmm. uh, now they're being... And they, those are crimes, undoubtedly. This guy's a major criminal. Uh, but the crimes happen to be uh, uh, provoked by the NATO bombing. They're, now what you read is, well, we had the bomb to return the Albanians to their homes. Yeah, except that they were driven out of their homes after the bombing. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were some displaced before, but the huge uh, expulsion and everything was after the bombing. Uh, before that, the West didn't, you know, saw it as kind of a, you know, guerrillas trying to elicit atrocities mm -hmm. and uh, responses and responses. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the description. Well, if you don't tell the truth, then you may still decide it was the right thing or the wrong thing. But unless you at least look at the facts, you, you're not even in the real world. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, it's a, it's a fact which we should look at. We can ask, was there an alternative? I mean, it was a bad place, no doubt. Was there an alternative to violence? Was, were there diplomatic alternatives? Well, you can look back and you see, in fact, I wrote at the time, it looks like there are yeah. diplomatic alternatives. I mean, Serbia had a position, NATO had a position. If you actually look at the result after two, 78 days of bombing, it's a compromise between those two positions. Mm -hmm. NATO gave up its most extreme demands, Serbs gave up their most extreme demands, and there was a kind of a compromise. Mm -hmm. Could that have been reached without the bombing and the atrocities? Well, you know, a good case could be made that it was, but remember, the burden of proof is on those who say you have to bomb. Mm -hmm. They try to put the burden of proof on others. They can't. Mm -hmm. It's the ones who use violence that have the burden of proof. Not everyone is Noam Chomsky and, and, and can't produce the, the extraordinary opus of works on, on these issues. So what, what is your advice for people who have the same concerns, who identify with the tradition that you come out of, and who want to be active in opposing these policies. What, what, is, what is it they need to be doing that would be productive? Same as the factory girls in the Lowell textile plant 150 years ago, I joined with others. Mm -hmm. uh, to do these things alone is extremely hard, mm -hmm. especially when you're working 50 hours a day a week to put food on the table. You join with others, you can do a lot of things. It's mm -hmm. got a big multiplier effect. I mean, that's why unions have always been in the lead of uh, development of social and economic progress. They bring together poor people, working people, enable them to learn from one another, to uh, have their own sources of information, and to act collectively. Mm -hmm. 
that's how everything has changed. Mm -hmm. Civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the solidarity movements, the workers' movements. I mean, the reason we don't live in a dungeon uh, is because people have joined together to change things. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing different now from before. In fact, you know, just the last 40 years have seen remarkable changes mm -hmm. in this respect. And, and in that sense, the, the, in addition to ending the war in Vietnam, the, the protest movement of the 60s really did change our consciousness. Totally changed yeah. the country. And it, it changed the behavior of governments, what they had to do to get what they wanted. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a good time to talk about it. This month, March 2002, uh, happens to be the 40th anniversary of the public announcement by the Kennedy administration that they were sending U.S. pilots to bomb South Vietnam. That's a U.S. bombing of South Vietnam. That was the initiation of chemical warfare to destroy food crops, uh, driving huge numbers of people into concentration camps. Uh, nobody was there except the U.S. and the South Vietnamese. And it was a U.S. war against South Vietnam publicly announced, not a peep of protest. Uh, the war went on for years before protests developed. But by the time it did, not just the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, other rising movements, it changed the popular consciousness. Mm -hmm. The country just became a lot more civilized. Mm -hmm. uh, no American president could possibly dream of doing that today. And the same is true in many other areas. Go back to 62, there was no feminist movement. There was very limited human rights movement, extremely limited. There was no environmental movement, meaning rights of our grandchildren. Uh, there were no third world solidarity movements. There was no anti-apartheid movement. There was no anti-sweatshop movement. I mean, all of the things that we kind of like take for granted just weren't there. Mm -hmm. How'd they get there? Uh, was it a gift from an angel? No, they got there by struggle, common struggle by people who dedicated themselves uh, with others, because you can't do it alone, mm -hmm. and f changed the, made it a much more civilized country. There's a long way to go, yeah. uh, and uh, that's not the first time it happened, but, uh, uh, and it'll continue. And, and uh, I, I gather it's your belief that when we focus on heroes in the movement, that's a mistake, because it's really the, the unsung heroes, the unsung seamstresses or whatever in, the, in this movement who, who actually make a difference. They're the one who do yeah. things. I mean, take, say, the civil rights movement. You think of the civil rights movement, the first thing you think of is Martin Luther King. King was an important figure. But he would have been the first to tell you, I'm sure, that he was riding the wave of activism. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who were doing the work, who were in the lead in the civil rights movement, were young SNCC workers, mm -hmm. uh, freedom riders, you know, people out there in the streets every day getting beaten, sometimes killed, uh, uh, working constantly. And they created the situation, circumstances, in which a Martin Luther King could come in and be a leader. And his role was extremely important. I'm not denigrating it. It's very important to have done that. But the people who were really important are the ones whose names are forgotten. And that's true of every movement that ever existed. If, if students were to watch this tape, uh, uh, how would you advise them to prepare for the future uh, if they identify with the goals that, that you're putting on the table? Be honest critical, accept elementary moral principles. For example, the principle that if something is wrong for others, it's wrong for us, things like that. Uh, understand the importance of uh, the fundamental 
anarchist principle, namely illegitimacy of prior illegitimacy of power and violence, unless you can justify it, which is not easy. It's their burden of proof, not yours. Uh, and that's true whether it's personal relations between, you know, in a family and whether it's international affairs. Uh, and beyond that, uh, try to join with others who share your interests to learn more and to uh, act uh, responsibly to improve the many very serious problems of the world, which can be done. There's, a, there's an important element of courage in this kind of work, is there not? And, and, and what is involved in that courage? Well, you know, in, in a country like the United States, the level of courage that's involved is extremely low. I mean, if you're a poor black organizer in the slums, yeah, it takes courage because you can get mm -hmm. killed. If you're a relatively well-off, educated white person, uh, the level of courage is minuscule. Now just see what other pace people face elsewhere. Okay, like I, as I say, I just came back from Turkey. I was, I mean, the people in the southeast living in a dungeon, millions of them, I mean, they show real courage when they, you know, wear Kurdish colors, let's say, or speak openly that, say, Kurdish is a language. They can end up in a Turkish prison or worse, and that's not fun. Uh, but let's even go to Istanbul, you know, sort of more Western. I mean, I actually went there for a political trial. The government was putting on trial a publisher who had published a couple of sentences of mine on repression of the Kurds. Well, in Istanbul, the writers... Uh, leading writers, uh, journalists, uh, artists, intellectuals, and others, they are constantly carrying out civil disobedience. Like when I was there, they purposely co-published a book of banned writings, writings of people in jail, which are banned, co-published it, went to the prosecutor, I went with them demanding to be prosecuted. Uh, that's no joke. Some of them have been in jail, some will go back to jail. They face repression, but they're they're not making a big fuss about it. They just do it in their normal behavior, not waving flags and saying, look how courageous I am. That's just life. Uh, that takes courage. As compared with what they face every day, what we face is so pathetically small that we shouldn't even be talking about it. Yes, unpleasant things can happen, uh, but not in comparison with what goes on in the world. Uh, coming out of science and uh, the level of complexity in that field that, that you can comprehend your field of linguistics, uh, I'm curious as to whether this accounts for what I think I detect is a, is a, is a moderate or almost conservative uh, view on your part of how much things can change, you know, in the short term. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a fair comment on you, but uh, uh, but is that the case that in, that in some sense, by seeing so much, you understand that uh, uh, very little sometimes can be accomplished, but that may be very important. Very important, and what's more, I don't think we should give up long-term visions. Yeah. So, right. like, I agree with the factory girls in Lowell in 1850. Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, uh, wage slavery is uh, an attack on fundamental human rights. I think those who work in the plants should own them. I think we should struggle against what was then the new spirit of the age, you know, gain wealth, forgetting everybody but yourself. Yeah, that's all degrading and destructive, and in the long term, I don't know how long, it should be dismantled. 
but the way you proceed. But right now, there are serious problems to deal with, mm -hmm. like 30 million Americans who don't have enough to eat, or people elsewhere in the world who are far worse off, and who are, in fact, under our boot. You know, we're mm -hmm. grinding them into the dust. Mm -hmm. Those are short-term things that can be dealt with. Uh, there's nothing wrong with making small gains, uh, like the gains that I was talking about before from the sixties till today, they're mm. extremely important for human lives. Uh, there's, it doesn't mean that there are not a lot of mountain peaks to climb. There are, mm -hmm. uh, but you can, you do what's within range. Same in the sciences. Mm -hmm. uh, you might like to solve the problems of, you know, what causes human action or mm -hmm. something, but the problems you work on are the ones that are right at the edge of your understanding. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's a famous joke about a drunk under a lamppost and somebody comes up and asks him, he's looking at the ground, what are you looking for? He mm -hmm. says, I'm looking for a, a pencil that I dropped. I said, well, where did you drop it? He said, oh, I dropped it across the street. Said, well, why are you looking here? Well, this is where the light is. You know? mm -hmm. yeah, that's the way the sciences work. I mean, maybe the problem you'd like to solve is across the street, but you have to work where the light is. Mm -hmm. And you try to move it a little further, maybe ultimately you'll get across the street. Mm -hmm. And the same is true in uh, human affairs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the same is true in personal relations. You, know, you mm -hmm. have a problem with your kids, that's the way you have to deal with it. Well, one final question, uh, and, and I, I, do, I, I understand your unwillingness to, to focus on heroes or to be made into a hero, but if, if an activist is watching this uh, uh, interview, uh, what lesson might they draw from your life about what they can do in their life with regard to the issues that are of concern to them? Well, I mean, last night, for example, I uh, gave a talk in Berkeley to a big mob of people about the uh, uh, U.S. and the Middle East, um, Israel, Palestine, Turkey, these things. Uh, who's responsible for that talk? Not me. You know, I flew in from Boston, came over and gave a talk. Uh, the people responsible for that are the people working on it, the people working day after day to create the organizational structures, the support systems, to go up and back to work with oppressed people over there. Uh, maybe their names won't enter some record, but they're the ones who are leading everything. I, I come in and, uh, you know, it's a privilege for me to be able to join them for an hour, but uh, that's easy, you know, get up and give a talk. It's no big deal. Working on it day after day, uh, all the time, that's hard, and that's important, and that's what changes the world, not somebody coming in and giving a talk. Noam, thank you very much for joining us today for this fascinating discussion of, of at least some aspects of your, uh, uh, your life and your work. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.